The content of this podcast should not be considered financial or investment advice. All interviews and discussions are opinions only, and the podcast has been created without taking into consideration the listener's financial objectives, financial situation, or needs. Listeners should obtain independent advice before making any financial decisions. Hi, this is Barry Fitzgerald, Garen Perro columns for Stockhead. Welcome to another edition of the Explorers Podcast. Today we're jumping back into the heavy rare earths field and funnily enough we've got a new company and the name is Heavy Rare Earths. I only joined the lists uh, back in August under the code HRE, trading at around 20 cents for a market cap of 15 million. The company raised uh, six million dollars uh, in the IPO. Is a welcome addition to the rare earth space and particularly the heavy rare earths which we all know have enjoyed some fantastic price rises in the last couple of years. So with that, we'll jump into it. We have the Managing Director with us, Richard Breschanini, with us today. Richard, welcome to the podcast. Good morning, Barry. How are you? I think I got the name right there, did I, Richard? All good. Yep, that's, that's, that's a good good effort and uh, you're spot on. Thanks for that. Now, Richard, uh, you've got, uh, as I said, only listed in August. Uh, you're well known in the uh, rare earth space, but uh, it might help some investors who haven't uh, come across you before, just to give them a bit of a background on yourself. Yeah, sure. I um, uh, well, most recently uh, just uh, ran ran my own little consultancy, uh, Total Rare Earth Solutions, for about a year and a half. I'd previously been with uh, with Arafura Resources, the uh, the rare earth developing the development company, um, developing the Nolans project in the territory um, for nearly fourteen years. And I guess during that time, I got involved with most aspects of the value chain from you know, right at the front end, exploration all the way through to, uh, to feasibility studies, product marketing, uh, stakeholder engagement, feasibility studies, a whole lot. Um, I like to think I can do a little bit of metallurgy as well. It can be a bit dangerous with that, but I, I do bring in metallurgical expertise as necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, before that, I was the director of the Northern Territory Geological Survey for four years. So I was up in Darwin. Um, so that's uh, going back to the early 2000s. And uh, before that, I was um, in mineral exploration for about 12 years with BHP Minerals in Australia and North America. And, um, and I'm a geophysicist by trade, but I also have a degree in geology. And that just about sums it up, Barry. It's uh, really most of my rare earth expertise has been, um, has been uh, put together in the last 14, 15 years, um, where really the focus are fewer and since for me. Has been in rare earths. Yeah, well, I can say it on your behalf. A recognised expert in the field. Uh, now, you're having a, a go as a CEO for your first time with this one. It is. It is. Yeah. So a bit of a different experience. And um, executive director, uh, the only executive on on the board, mm-hmm. and uh, thoroughly enjoying my uh, my week and a half uh, post listing. Right. Uh, tell us about the project uh, down uh, Norsham Way. Uh, Norseman Way in uh, Western Australia, about uh, 70 kilometres southeast, actually, of Norseman. And uh, more importantly, uh, oh, just as importantly, I guess, uh, Esperance Port, about 100 kilometres uh, further south. So tell us about the project, what you've got. I will. Uh, yeah, Esperance is, it will be an important point for us, by the way. It's a little bit further away, but I think we'll be operating the project mostly out of, uh, out of Esperance, uh, flying in out of Esperance as necessary and getting 
getting all the logistical support out of Esperance. It's just a little little more straightforward because once you hit the highway from the Caledonia project, it's about an hour's drive south to Esperance and a little bit further to Norseman. So we'll be we'll be operating out of Esperance primarily. The project um, is about 40, 40 or 50 k's off the highway between um, Kulgadi and Esperance um, to the east, uh, wholly on uh, unallocated crown land. So it's it's off the off off the um, the wheat belt, uh, the southern wheat belt there around Esperance. Um, it's a clay hosted rare earth resource that we've uh, discovered, or at least my predecessors in in HRE discovered um, in the middle of last year. It's uh, it seems to be looks to be extensive, flat lying, uh, about seven to eight meters thick, uh, sitting under around seventeen to eighteen meters of cover, um, hosted in saprolite. Saprolite being uh, being weathered weathered basement rocks. Basement rocks there are Albany Fraser rocks, um, mixture of uh, metasedimentary rocks, uh, ultramafics, um, uh, granitic material. Um, and the enrichment uh, in in that saprolite uh, looks pretty solid to me, um, t- technically solid. Uh, we outlined a resource, or the company outlined resource, uh, when I came on board um, late last year, and uh, it currently sits at around 28 million tonnes at, at 625 ppm total rare earths in the ground. Now, 625 ppm um, is modest, and I certainly, when I came on board, had to get my head around the fact that we're dealing with 625 parts per million total rare earths in the ground versus percent rare earths, tens of thousands of ppm that the hard rock uh, projects had. So it took, took, took a little while for me to get my head around that. I'm a bit more comfortable, a lot more comfortable in that space, I should say. And really, it all comes back to um, the ability to be able to outline a resource uh, on the project at Kaolinia that is uh, probably triple figures in terms of tonnes, because you're going to have to push a lot of material through through a plant to be able to produce a reasonable amount of rare earths and sell it to the market. And of course, selling to the market means you have to make something that the market wants. And um, a project like this is likely to deliver something like a, a rare earth carbonate um, some sometime in the future and uh, rare earth carbonate can be sold on market and uh, you're really going to have to get busy with the metallurgy to be able to make money out of 625 ppm in the ground and, and, I, and I say 625 but you know, we could talk a thousand ppm in the ground it's the same sort of principle supply where you really have to work hard to be able to come up with a metallurgical scheme where you can recover rare earths efficiently um, at a low enough a low enough opex and uh, not too high a capex, um, so that you can demonstrate the project could be viable. And that's the second part of our project is really to get moving on the metallurgical scheme as well as building the resource base so that you come under the um, the gaze of uh, the ultimate customers of of a project like this, which which ultimately are people who have rare earth permanent magnets sitting in their devices, uh, automakers and so on. They're the ultimate customers. So you want to really get get uh, noticed by them so that when when you are in a position to be able to commercialise the deposit, you can uh, go and seek appropriate funding with, with the backing of those types of companies. So that's the project in a nutshell. Um, uh, there, are, there are no rocks at surface. It's completely covered uh, by, by more recent uh, sands. And we drill through that to get to the saprolite, and um, and that's where the game begins for us. Okay. Now these uh, clay-hosted style ionic clay style um, deposits, of course, is uh, 
what China's uh, reinvented the market uh, starting in around 1970, near surface lateral deposits. Um, so this is uh, of similar style to those ones in southern China. At a at a at a uh, high level, it is um, both styles are hosted Kaolinia and the and the, the Chinese um, uh, southern Chinese ionic clay deposits, as they're called, uh, are both hosted in in um, in clay material, weathered weathered basement material. Um, but when you start looking at a more detailed level, and this is when when you start to look at the metallurgy, of course, around this and and how the rare earths are bonded in the in the matrix, um, that's where potential departures could occur mm-hmm. um, and we don't have enough information yet at our disposal to say whether this is a true ionic clay deposit or whether it's a clay-hosted rare earth play, which is perhaps unique in the southern part of Australia. Not sure. The, the, on, on, the, on the evidence that I see across many other projects that are emerging in the southern part of the country, um, it looks to me like there's another type of play emerging, perhaps not exactly like the Chinese style, but that doesn't make it uh, potentially any less um, economic. Uh, you just have to come up with some smart ways to process. And as you rightly point out, the uh, Chinese have been uh, exploiting those deposits in southern China for decades now. Uh, we, we don't know much around the economics of those deposits. All we do know is that it's very, very important uh, for China to continue to produce heavy rare earths. The, the, the Chinese ionic clays are the world's largest source of heavy rare earths, terbium, dysprosium, and so on. And, uh, and the second most uh, important area for the production of heavy rare earths is Myanmar and northern Vietnam. Now, when you talk Myanmar, of course, um, you know, you're talking about military juntas and so on, and so there's some, some constrained constrained. Um, uh, constrained supply coming out of Myanmar, let's just say, because of the unique geopolitical situation there. So it's really important for the rest of the world, and in fact China, to come up with alternative sources of, uh, of heavy rare earths, and that's what we might see emerging in Australia, including at our own project today. Mm, okay. um, 2011, we saw prices peak, mm-hmm. um, and there was uh, China was involved with that. A few arguments over with Japan over. Uh, sea borders, etc. But I was just wondering, this, and we've seen some very strong price increases across the board for both heavy and light uh, rare earths this time around. Is it different this time around? I think it is different. Um, well, of course, we always like to say those sorts of things in the minerals game, don't we? It's different mm. this time. But, you know, back at 2010, 2011, I was, I was already in the rare earths game back then, and that was really largely driven by fear, um, to be honest, as you, as you point out, that China and Japan were at loggerheads in the East China Sea, I think it was, um, and uh, there was an embargo placed on the on the export of rare earths from from China to Japan, and that started to really drive prices. And what you ended up seeing there was was actually the, the, the destruction of a particular rare earth market, which was in Syrium. Uh, the prices went so high that people began to the, the developers began to um, to uh, seek alternatives to, for cerium, which is now back at a dollar a kilo, you know, whereas back right. then it was probably a couple of hundred dollars a kilo. I can't remember mm-hmm. what the actual price was, but that's that's the danger in prices going too high is 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 the destruction of markets. Um, this time, uh, I don't think it's just been driven, or in, in no ways it's been driven by fear. Although you do see in the press from time to time people speculate about the possibility of China, um, you know, placing placing uh, restrictions on export of rare earths. 
I can't see that happening quickly. Um, there's not a lot of evidence of that yet, but, you know, we're, we, we live in strange times. Um, I think that what you're beginning to see now is the world trying to, to the extent that it can, decouple from the Chinese rare earth supply chain, uh, recognising that, you know, rare earths go into all sorts of applications that are important to countries around clean energy, um, you know, electric vehicles, wind turbines, those sorts of things. Um, and, you know, and governments and, and of course, uh, citizens that want to move in that direction. So there's a recognition that China um, has a, exerts a great deal of control over the rare earth supply chain, particularly in rare earth permanent magnets. We'll try to decouple from that. And so you're starting to see a lot more projects beginning to um, develop and not just uh, rare, um, exploration plays, but real development plays. Mm. Um uh, emerge right across the world, but particularly in Australia. You, you see Linus um, expanding their capacity, Hastings are getting ahead with financing, Arafura getting ahead with financing, ASM getting ahead with financing. So these are real projects that can make an impact on market and they are being supported by governments in, in terms of grants and um, and uh, debt. Uh, Iluca is another one that's moving forward with a development, of course, uh, exploiting the monocyte in their heavy mineral sands developments. So there's some real support going on in the background and that lends um, optimism, a sense of confidence to financiers and, of course, customers that, that in fact, projects can emerge outside of China, which was really the situation back in 2011 was that, you know, the world was really wondering whether anything else could emerge outside mm. of China. The only one that did really was Linus in any sustainable way, as did Mountain Pass, but it collapsed, um, which has since come back. But um, uh, that's a big difference this time is that there are, there are real demand drivers to see more product enter the market, you know, which is really being driven by um, the world's efforts to decarbonise, notwithstanding the issues that are going on in Europe right now. Um, there's still that very, very strong push, and that's giving, um, giving financiers a lot more comfort around the, uh, the financing of these projects. And that's a big difference that's going on today versus what happened back in 2011. Mm, yeah. Always a strategic uh, group of metals, but uh, now considered critical by uh, governments around the world. As you they say. are, and many Western governments have stated that quite clearly. And, um, you know, that's great for projects like ours. And, you know, these clay hoster projects are beginning to emerge because, you know, prices have been strong and, um, and companies can begin to contemplate, you know, the recovery of 1,000 ppm, 500 ppm out of the ground, you know, which which does require prices to be a little bit high so that you can, you can sell at a, a slightly higher price. But I think you'll see, even though prices have come off a little in the last couple of months, I think you'll see a level that's going to be sustained, um, for example, in the price of uh, NDPR, idemium praseidemium, which is really the building blocks of the rare and permanent magnet industry. Um, you know, it's currently trading at around $95 a kilo, you know, I'm, I'm expecting it to be somewhere north of 75 US dollars a kilo for quite some time to come. I guess it remains to be seen what happens there, but that's a long way north of where it was even three or four years ago when it was sitting down in the 30s. So that that's that's a real welcome welcome uh, aspect of the market, which hasn't been there in the past. And it isn't just a single spike as, as happened in 2011. Uh, there seems to be a lot more meat to it this time, which is really demand driven and also constraints of supply because of underinvestment in the industry for many, many years, particularly outside of China, which is now starting to be reversed in the way that I mentioned earlier. Mm, okay. Uh, investors uh, 
on the ASX, obviously had good feelings for when someone puts out a resource estimate uh, in gold, say, or iron ore for that matter. When we say 28 million tonnes at this stage at 625 ppm, mm-hmm. is that project size in rare earths world? I don't think it is project size or development size for this style of project. Um, it, it may be if the grade was 5% total rare earths, <laughs> but it's not. So, you know, we're dealing with, with a different style here. So, as I said earlier, there's there's going to be a requirement for HRE to build a resource inventory um, probably in the hundreds of millions of tonnes to be able to produce enough rare earths every year to be noticed by the market and to be able to sell into the market. Um, there's going to be there's going to be a a um, uh, I, don't, I don't know what that number is at this point in time, but it, as I say, it'll be in the hundreds of millions of tonnes. Now, mm. we have a single tenement out there, 600 and, uh, 350 square kilometres, I think it is. I can't remember the number. Um, it uh, We've only drilled a percent and a half of it or less than a percent and a half of it. So there's plenty of room to expand on that single tenement. Um, uh, many others in the region are taking up very large tenement positions for good reason. Um, we have brought a resource to market, which is quite unusual, um, rather than just an exploration idea or, or a large mm-hmm. land position. So we're hoping, uh, we're, we're, we're hopeful that, that we'll see increased um, footprint of resource when we start drilling in the near future. And that's really what we're aiming to do within the first year is to be able to demonstrate both a larger resource inventory um, and also a, a pathway, a technical pathway to efficient recovery of rare earths in our metallurgical program. Right. At this stage, do you have a feel for what the composition of the mineralisation is, you know, the split between heavies and lights? We do, we do. Um, that's one of the first things everyone, of course, looks at. Um, and, you know, I say to investors, you know, the ESC have the 15 rare earths, um, but don't get too focused on all of them. It all becomes a little bit complicated. Just really focus on the ones that go into the rare earth permanent magnets, which is where most of the value in all of these projects mm-hmm. is. And for us, those four rare earths, Neodymium, Praseodymium, NDPR, uh, and Terbium and Dysprosium, which are the heavy rare earths that are that are that are uh, um, put into rare earth permanent magnets to, for them to be able to retain their their magnetization under temperature and pressure. Um, we have those four magnet rare earths, as we like to call them, um, is 25% of our composition. And the heavy rare earths is 23% of the composition. Um, that also includes yttrium. And uh, yttrium's prices have been strengthening as well in the last uh, last year, I've noticed. And um, uh, so, yes, 25% magnet rare earths, 20, 23% heavy rare earths. And I think that's a pretty reasonable spot uh, from which to uh, to build the project. Right, okay. So you've uh, hit the ground running, as they say, and you've just started uh, what you call a analytical and uh, test work program. Tell us a bit about that. We, um, yeah, we've we've submitted uh, uh, over seven hundred samples to uh, Lab West here in Perth um, to be able to uh, re-assay all of the drill samples that we use in the estimation of our 28 million tonnes of resource. And the reason for that is that, that the previous scheme that we use, which was a four-acid digest, is really just targeting the acid-soluble minerals. But I like to get a feel for what the total rare earth inventory is. You know, what's the head grade that we start with? What's the real head grade that we start with? Whether the, whether the rare earth bearing phases are acid-soluble or refractory, 
Mm-hmm. And so we're going back and saying, okay, let's let's start an assay scheme as if we were starting again and use a lithium borate fusion, which will which will be far more effective at um, uh, accounting for all of the rare earths in the uh, in the resource rather than just a subset of the rare earths. So our expectation on the basis of uh, 60-odd samples that we did uh, whilst we were still private, a, a, a direct comparison between our four-acid digest and lithium borate fusion was that uh, there was a 12, 12-odd percent increase using lithium borate fusion. So we're expecting to see that um, when we when we uh, have all of the samples uh, uh, reassayed by LabWest. Um, now, that doesn't mean to say that our resource will suddenly be, um, you know, 625 parts per million plus another 12%. Uh, potentially it could mean that, but we won't be saying that because that would mean that we'd have to go back and re-estimate resources. And in the middle of that, we're also recompositing from four-metre composites to two-metre composites. So that's going to allow us a lot better definition on, on the uh, fringes of the resource, the, 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 um, the boundaries of the resource, which will probably add a few more tonnes as well. But we're not going to re-estimate resources. What we'll do instead is just have that as the basis for uh, any new resource estimation that's done after we've gone out and drilled our next campaign. So another 10,000 metres of drilling, add that to the inventory that we're just um, generating now uh, through LabWest, and then we'll put all that in together once we, we have another another resource estimate um, campaign potentially in the first um, quarter of next year. That's on the reassay side of things. And the metallurgical side of things, yes, we've we've commenced um, the metallurgical, the hard work of metallurgy. Uh, this is the, really the key work of the project is around metallurgy. And um, we've only just done a little bit of uh, uh, previous to... Um, um, strategic metallurgy getting involved, which is the, the lab here in Perth. Um, we've just done a little bit of, uh, of leach test work, which, which demonstrates that, you know, up to 90%, and it's around 87, 88% of, uh, of our rare earths going to solution using a, a weak hydrochloric acid leach. Now, that's a good start, right. but we've got a lot more work to do than just say that we can bring it into solution. Um, we need to know what uh, what fractions are involved there? In other words, the the, you know, the grain size of the material that's going in. You know, is it is it particularly confined? Is it the coarse grain material? Is it the fine grain? I suspect it'll be the very fine grained, maybe clay or silt size um, material going into solution. That's yet to be confirmed. That's that works just starting now. And then we'll be testing a range of acids as well as uh, ammonium sulfate, which is the classic. Uh, reagent used, lixivient used by in the Chinese ionic clay um, case. So we'll be testing that um, as well as a range of acids to see uh, what responds best, how our, how our mineralization responds for a range of samples across the resource um, at different depths in upper and lower saprolite. So we're trying to get a little bit of an idea of how it um, uh, how it varies across the resource as well. You have to find that out eventually. So we'll, we'll start with 13 samples at various depths, um, various grades, um, just to see the response of different acids, different different operating conditions um, on the recovery of rare earths into solution. And then we begin to work from there to see how we can then precipitate out those rare earths and to begin to turn it into something that you can sell. So that's that that's work. That work is only just commencing now. We only delivered samples to... Um, strategic metallurgy last week and we're getting head assays done um, at LabWest for those samples as well. 
So you've got, got a very full book there, but uh, you did come to market with a different style of project, uh, Duke, up in PNT, uh, not far from Tennant Creek. Uh, what, uh, what's happening there? With... I um, we, We're called Heavy Rare Earths, and that was a fantastic name that the, um, that the company had managed to reserve. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sort of a, a marketing uh, uh, coup. Um, as far as I'm concerned, to, to reserve that name. I like the Heavy Rare Earths because um, I think a bunch of market commentators are saying, and from my analysis, I think that's going to be in deficit for quite some time to come because of the issues around the recovery of Heavy Rare Earths in the Chinese clays, which is mm-hmm. environmentally compromising, and then, of course, a geopolitical situation with the, the importation of material from Myanmar, which really just can't be relied on. Um, in a market sense, in a commercial sense. So I think there's going to be a deficit in uh, the heavy rare earths market. And consequently, I'm very, very interested in targeting deposits that have enrichment in heavy rare earths. And the um, the one hard rock uh, style that I'm aware of that, that really excels in that area is the Browns Range deposit of... of uh, of um, uh, northern minerals, uh, northern minerals up in um, up near Horse Creek. So we're targeting, and these are just conceptual plays at this point in time. Uh, we're mm-hmm. targeting Browns Range style mineralisation because of its enrichment in heavy rare earths. Um, you'll find when you look at the, that deposit um, uh, that you know ten percent or so of the composition of the rare earths is dysprosium alone. Um, it's unbelievable, it's, and and that's all. That's all. What, that is because the the host mineral is xenotime, which is a yttrium phosphate, and and chock full of heavy rare earths compared right. to light rare earths. So we are targeting that style of deposit. Hopefully, something larger than Brown's range. Not to be disparaging to them, all the minerals guys. It is it is small, um, and maybe that's how they occur. That's perhaps what we'll find if we if we're fortunate enough to uh, to come across one. The Duke area has some of the characteristics we're looking for, not all of the characteristics for that style of deposit. There are, there's no known rare earth expiration in that part of the world, so we're starting fresh there. And we're trying to generate other areas across the country to, to look for that style of, of rare earth. So xenotime is a great mineral to be looking for rare earths in, and, um, and, northern, and the Northern Minerals Grounds Range deposit is a fine example of that. No. The newly arrived heavy rare earths, otherwise uh, HRE, the code, trading at around 20 cents. Obviously, a very technically savvy uh, new entrant to the ASX with an advanced project near Norseman and a, a Greenfields project of interest uh, on the heavy rare earth side of things up in uh, the NT. So, Richard, you've outlined a fascinating story for us today, so we'll be watching with interest. Good luck with it all, and thanks for your time today. Thank you, Barry.